If you have your Bibles, can we turn with me to Genesis, the first book in the Bible? Reasonably easy to find, even for an Englishman. So, the book of Genesis, and chapter 44, returning to our study. We've been studying the book of Genesis for the last millennia, and uh, we come to um, Genesis 44 this morning. Um, not quite Ezra, David, but we've been in Genesis for a while. And uh, let's pray before we read God's Word. Our Lord and our God, we do thank you for your Word. I thank you for how it reveals your designs, your wisdom, your providence. We pray this morning, O God, you would speak to our hearts, that you would give us grace to trust in providence, to see your hand, your searching hand, your testing hand in providence to respond as we ought, not only in trust and obedience, but in repentance as well. We pray, O Lord, that your word would speak to us this day and be applied to our hearts by the work of the Holy Spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Genesis in chapter 44. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. <coughs> and he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent, were sent away with their donkeys. They had only gone a short distance from the city, and now Joseph said to his steward, Up! Follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to the, them these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, let it be as you say, he who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. And Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said to him, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, O oh my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? 
And we said to my Lord, we have a father, an old man and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead and he alone is left of his mother's children and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father for he should leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down if our youngest brother goes with us. Then we will go down. We cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons, one left me. And I said, surely he has been torn to pieces. And I've never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my grey hairs and evil to Sheol. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us then, as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the grey hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. This is God's word. Amen. We've seen in our study in Genesis, and you know it well, the overarching theme of God's providence. Not only does the Lord tell us in the story of Joseph how Israel wound up in Egypt, not only does he tell us how God made this family of Jacob into a great nation in accordance with his promises to Abraham, which we've already looked at briefly in Genesis 12, 15 and 17. But God also shows us something of his strategy in redemption with his people. To bring blessing where there is estrangement, to bring reconciliation where there is enmity. We've seen some of those themes and we come now to Genesis 44. And we see in the life of Joseph there's a pattern of humiliation and exaltation. It repeats itself, that pattern of humiliation and exaltation. He began life as the favoured son. And then in the very context of his rivalry with his brothers, he experienced that great humiliation of his life. He was sold into slavery. And he served well as a servant in the house of Potiphar. And he found himself falsely accused and he ended up in prison. He was even about helping one of the king's servants and encouraging him in that time forgotten for the period of years in the prison. He's, re he's released and his exaltation begins. Joseph the forgotten son, the one who was sold into slavery, is made the Grand Vizier of Egypt, the second highest ranking official behind Pharaoh. So in the very context of his exaltation, 
Even as with his own mouth and heart he's uttered these words, God has caused me to forget my father's household. The Lord brings his father's household right into his own backyard. And the Lord begins to do a work that Joseph could not imagine. And one of the reasons that this story is here is that we see God's hand in all things. And we should look at our own lives and trace God's hand in our own lives. But we come to Genesis 44, where Joseph's test reaches its great culmination. In Genesis 42 and 43, we saw that Joseph's family were brought to Egypt because of the famine. In Genesis 42, Joseph gave his family grain. Though he kept Simeon back, they'd been accused of being spies. So as assurance they would come back, Simeon was kept. And they returned as they promised, bringing Benjamin. Although that took a lot of persuading Israel, the, the patriarch. But they did return with Benjamin, and they were treated greatly. They were feasted royally. They were treated kindly by Joseph. And they were brought into his own household. They supped with him. And here, in the context, they're going to depart. But Joseph has this final test to bring to his brothers. He, he's engaging in a gigantic test in the hearts of the brothers. He was wounded severely by these men. He was severely hurt by these men. His relationship had always been estranged. And when they were being reunited in the time of famine, he was, his concern was, are they the same as they were before? Are their hearts the same as when they left me for dead? Have they changed any? Or are their hearts the same? And no, he had not yet revealed himself to them. They hadn't recognised him. He continues to conceal who he is from them. And he's putting them to the test. First thing I want you to see is that God does not tempt, but he tests. God does not tempt, but he tests. You see that test laid out for you in verses 1 and 2. And Joseph's plan was designed to reveal the heart of his brothers. What's going on? Have they changed? And his brothers had done what they had promised. They brought Benjamin down to Egypt. Now they're preparing to go back to Canaan. He sets out the second part of his plan. You see, at first he accused them of being spies and he generously gave money back to them. He kept Simeon as surety to get that, at least get a better probability that they would return and maybe even bring Jacob. So Jake, Joseph's dealings are to complete that plan, that testing plan, he began in Genesis 42. Now, let me just pause quickly and say, when we apply this to ourselves, Joseph's dealings are probably not the ideal model for us to follow in our own family situations. Many, a counsellor has seen husbands and wives who give each other secret tests and then wonder why they fail those secret tests. So Moses is not encouraging us to put, you know, put traps all over the house to, for each other. 
But in part we see this because of the story of Joseph's dealing with his brother. It is clear from Moses, it is clear from those very words that his brothers say in Genesis 42, we'll see those in a moment. Joseph's dealing with his brothers is a shadow of God's dealing with his brothers. So even in Joseph's test, we see God acting more than Joseph. So don't emulate the plan, please, but learn the lesson. Because this is important for the history of the story of Joseph. And the important message, my friend, is there can never be reconciliation without repentance. If there is to be reconciliation, there needs to be repentance. He wants his brothers to experience and to put themselves where he was. So he does it to test them, to bring them to the point where they can recognise what they have done. And Joseph sets this test because he wants to see the hearts of his brothers. How do they, how do they now think of their brother Benjamin? How do they treat my mother's son. What do they think of him? Will they treat him the way that they treated me? And what do they think of their father now? Years before, they didn't care that by dumping Joseph, they would break Joseph, uh, Jacob's heart. They didn't care about their father. They didn't care about Joseph. His cries, his pleas, they ignored how will they treat Benjamin now? And so they had been unmoved by Joseph's plight. They'd been uncaring of what that would mean to, to his father. And he wanted to know, are they the same men? Are they still the same men? And the only way that that could be accomplished was under duress. So Joseph concocted this scheme. He returned the money as an act of kindness. It wasn't designed to incriminate them. It was a little bit like heaping coals of fire upon their heads because it was another act of unmerited kindness toward them. The money is returned to them and the cup is placed in Benjamin's sack. And the taking of a ruler's special cup would have been offensive as well as being stupid, to be fair. How could anyone expect that a ruler would go a day without noting that his favourite cup had gone missing? And uh, it's obvious. You know, I don't know whether you have a favourite cup. I have quite a few, actually. My favourite one has Reformed Theological Seminary on the side. And I always think I'm a good Reformed person when I'm drinking it. No, not really. But how would they know? How would they know? How would they, you know, how would they know, expect that their father would go a day without his special cup? And not notice. So it's a fairly stupid thing to do to take a cup. Take anything else. But something that it would be using several times a day doesn't seem to be the most logical thing to do. So it gives them an opportunity and Joseph an opportunity to see how they react when they've been wrongly dealt with, when they've been falsely accused. Maybe they were suspicious. Have we been set up again? Just like the money were in the sacks last time, has someone in Joseph's household dumped the cup to be used against us? Is one of the Egyptians against us? 
and so has done this in order to harm us, to bring us harm. And it gives them the opportunity to show Joseph how they will react, even as he had the opportunity to show how he would react when he was wrongly dealt with so many years ago. Whatever is happening here, it is Joseph's plan is part of God's plan in the life of Jacob's family. God, in his word, says he does not tempt us. That is true. But he does test us. Now the words are the same in the Bible, the thought is the same. The difference is simply this. Temptation is designed to destroy you. Testing is designed to do you good. Temptation is designed to destroy you. Testing is designed for your good. So God searches out through Joseph's plan the hearts of the sons. Derek Kidner says in his commentary, Joseph's strategy is already brilliantly successful in creating the situations and tensions required, now produces its master stroke. Like the judgment of Solomon, the sudden threat to Benjamin was a thrust to the heart of the brothers. In that moment, they stood revealed. So that was what the plan was designed to do, verses 1 and 2. Second point, verses 3 to 17. God knows how to put his finger on our most vulnerable points. And we see this dialogue between Joseph's brother and the steward, and finally between Joseph's brothers and Joseph. And the stolen cup is discovered, Benjamin is arrested, guilt is accepted. And again we see, not only does God test the heart, but God knows how to put his finger on our most vulnerable and indefensible points. And he does so in the hearts of Joseph's brothers. The brothers leave at dawn. They're overtaken by the household steward. They're accused of threat theft. They strenuous, strenuous, strenuously deny their guilt. They offer arguments for how trustworthy they are. Look, if we're going to steal a cup from your household, why would we bring the money in the sacks back to Egypt and give it back to you? Why would we have done that? We've already shown we're honest. Their consciences were clear, so they were arguing. This is, this is unfair, and it was. They, didn't, they hadn't stolen the cup. And they actually went on to, to appeal that the most harshest punishment be meted out to the one who was found to be guilty. They even say, kill the one who has done this, and the rest of us will be slaves. That's how confident they were in their own innocence. And the steward responds in verse 10, laying a trap for their hearts, testing their hearts. He says, no, 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 you propose that the guilty man be killed and the rest of you enslaved. All I'm asking for is that the guilty one be enslaved. The rest of you can go free. And by that statement, they're tested in their concern for their brother and in their love for their father. Will they look out for their own skin or will they be loyal to Benjamin? Will they let Benjamin just be delivered up? Or, and then they could go home scot-free? Just like they did with Joseph. Will they care about their father? Or will they forsake Benjamin? You see, that's the test right there before them. So that search commences. Benjamin is the last one to be searched. You can imagine, can't you, that tension. You know, a sack after sack after sack is opened from oldest to youngest, and there is the cup. 
But the men, the brothers, immediately recognise that God's hand of providence has struck. That's what they do. They immediately recognise that God's hand is in this. They forget all the temporal aspects of this. They don't protest this is a setup. They don't protest their innocence. They recognise that God has laid his finger on them. They tear their clothes. They display their brokenheartedness. They display repentance. They return to the city and Judah is the spokesperson. And in verse 14, the brothers prostrate themselves before Joseph, fulfilling that dream, that prophecy of Genesis 37. And in, chapter, in verse 15, Joseph questions them. Now this reference to divination has caused some commentators a great deal of trouble. I'm just glad I've never done a commentary on Genesis. But you remember earlier when he spoke to Pharaoh, he disclaimed the power of divination. and said only God could reveal. So what on earth is Joseph doing with a cup for divination? And why is he claiming to do it? Well, you can go and ask David after the service and he'll give you a definitive answer on that. But whatever the answer is, I think it's fair to say it well may be simply part of his ruse. He's attempting to conceal who he is still from them. John J. Davis says in his commentary, it is possible that the practice of hydromancy, uh, I hope I said it nearly right, that is determining the future or determining secrets through what you put in the cup. It is possible that that practice was not common in Egypt in his time, but it was invoked by Joseph to give his scheme a, a, an air of authenticity, to hide who he was from them. But at any rate, whatever there, I leave that to others, uh, Judah answers for his brothers in verse 16. And I'd like you to look at that verse because it is a classic. In verse 16, Judah says, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. He's not just confessing the silver cup. He may not be confessing the silver cup at all because he's seen once they got their money back in the sack and they have not done anything wrong and now it happened again. We do not, we're not sure if he thinks Benjamin has done this or figures out that God is behind this. So what he's thinking is, I don't know what happened, but God is behind this. So when he says our guilt has found us out, He's not thinking, Benjamin, how could you have done this? He's thinking that God in some way had placed the cup and their guilt that they've lived with for 20 years has finally come out. We used to, I used to sing as a child, run away, run away, oh poor sinner, you can never run away. Be sure your sins will find you out. Those sins that they had thought long forgotten, 20 years before. Now God has put his finger on that. And God is now repaying us for those sins that we did to Joseph. God has found out the guilt of your servant. Judah doesn't blame, Judah doesn't protest, he just acknowledges his wrong. When is the last time you did that? 
to God and to someone that you have wronged. That God has found out my guilt. I have no one to blame. My sin is not because of my parents. I'm not a victim. No, I'm a sinner. The world will tell you that you're a victim. The Bible tells you that you're a sinner. And that you need mercy. Judah said, God has found out my guilt. I have no one to blame. I will not protest. I will not rationalise. I won't explain it away. What I did was wrong and I am guilty. And it may be that even in your life, it's not to say that other people might not also be guilty. Because when we sin, we create a web. A web of sin. And it may be that you sinned and many people sinned against you. And that's not to excuse what they did. But in owning what he did, Judah said, God has found out my guilt. That's the word that Judah uses to describe their still state. Guilty. And Judah's words seem to have a double meaning. God has found out the guilt of your servants. On the one hand, he's not attempting to deflect responsibility for the stolen cup. But on the other hand, if you go back to Genesis 42, that Judah on behalf of his brothers is admitting that God is seeking out their secret sins and revealing them it to them. God has found out their guilt in Genesis 44. We see the recognition that in God's providence, he's been seeking them out. And he's put the finger on the place where they're most vulnerable. The other son of Rachel, the son of their father Jacob, the brother of their long-lost brother Joseph has become the subject of the searching of the Grand Vizier of Egypt. And they choose to trace this particular action, not to be wrongly treated, but right back to the providence and judgment of God. And I want you to see that this following on this, Joseph tests their heart by giving them the right to leave even though Benjamin might, must stay. And my friends, if Joseph in this scheme knew how to search out the hearts of his brothers, how much more does God know how to, to search our hearts? God, in his providence, knows where we are vulnerable, where we are indefensible. And by his grace, he puts his finger on that point. Not that we might continue in that sin on the way to destruction, but that we might turn and be embraced in his mercy. It's because he loves us that God tests us. It's because he loves us that he puts his finger on the spot. Kidner says, when the steward converted their challenge of verse 9, when they said we will be slaves, when the steward converted their challenge of verse 9 into a chance of freedom at Benjamin's expense, all the conditions were present for another betrayal at a far more compelling price, their freedom. Years before, they got 20 pieces of silver. Now freedom is offered. If only they will betray Benjamin. God had changed the hearts of these brothers. God had changed their hearts. And their, their response shows that they were different from what they were before. And one last thing, if you look at verses 18 to 34, my third and final point, it is a mark of grace to know that we do not deserve mercy, only the wicked think they do. If you see this moving plea of Judah, 
in which he declares his willingness to suffer on behalf of his brother. And he reflects a heart that has been changed by God. This passage tells us many things, but it tells us this. It is a mark of grace to know that we do not deserve mercy. It is the wicked who think that they deserve the mercy of God. Do you think that you deserve the mercy of God? Do you think that you deserve God to show you mercy? That there's something about you? But Judah makes it clear he's not even going to ask for mercy from Joseph because he does not deserve it. So that in and of itself shows you that the work of grace that has been done in Judah's heart. Judah addresses Joseph. He speaks respectfully to him. He begs his patience. He tells the family story. And he argues two things. First of all, he makes it clear he will do anything to avoid hurting his father. And secondly, he makes it clear that he made a covenant with his father. He pledged himself. He called on his father's curse for the rest of his life if he doesn't bring Benjamin back. And because of Judah's love for Jacob, Israel, and because of the covenant that he made with Israel, he bases his plea on the one he doesn't even know is Joseph. God's, God's hand is remarkable if you see this. And as you read through the passage, you can see ten points in which Joseph's heart would have been breaking just to hear Judah's word. But especially in verses 20 and 28. How would Joseph have responded to hearing these words? We said to my Lord, we have a father, an old man, and a young brother. The child of his old age, his brother is dead. And he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. And in verse 28, one left me, and I said, surely he's been torn to pieces. And I've never seen him since. If you take this one also. Judah doesn't confess everything. When God puts his finger, many times the confession comes like peeling an onion. The true confession, full confession comes later when Joseph discloses his identity. But now the process of confession and repentance has begun. And when God brings conviction, or when God brings conviction to someone who's offended us, we shouldn't expect the fullness of that conviction to be expressed all at once because sinners, even under conviction, have that desire to protect themselves. So God pursues us like the hound of heaven until we completely disclose our culpability. Only then can we be right with him and with our brethren. The heart state of Joseph's brothers is seen in that they do not plead for mercy. Judah does not say, Grand Vizier of Egypt, give us mercy. He just simply says, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back. He asks for the privilege to suffer on behalf of his brother. He asks for the privilege to serve as a slave in the place of Benjamin. And that reveals the heart change of Judah towards Benjamin and towards his brother, his father. This is one of the brothers who years before ignored the cries of Joseph, who years before had been indifferent to the heart of his father, and now he's begging for the privilege to be a slave in his brother's place. The guilty offers himself as a substitute 
for the innocent. But my friend, you see that? A guilty offers himself as a substitute for the innocent. I want you to see that. Because there was another from the tribe of Judah who was innocent. And he offered himself as his substitute for his guilty brothers. The lion of the tribe of Judah. And that substitute would be accepted. And he would live and die in their place so that, my, that they might experience his glory. Isn't the gospel wonderful, my friend? Here we see the guilty offer himself for the innocent. But there was one from the tribe of Judah who was innocent, who did stand in the place of the guilty. And Judah's new heart manifests itself in love for God and in love to his neighbour. He shows his love of God in not questioning, in not questioning God's providence. God, you found me out. Didn't try and technically argue anything. No, God, you have found me out. I deserve this. And he showed his love to neighbour and his love for Benjamin and his love for his father. And a changed heart has a different view of God and a different view of neighbour. The resignation to providence shows us the heart of Judah. So what I would say, my friend, it is a mark of grace to know we do not deserve mercy. Only a wicked man would have attempted to justify himself. But the heart change wrought by the hand of God is apparent in the words of actions of Judah. And we're going to see more as we go forward. It's one of the it's one of the treasures of working through a book that we know something's around the corner. But I want you to remember this one thing, that the Lion of Judah, who was innocent, died in my room. Have you put your trust, have you put your trust solely in the finished work of the Lord Jesus, the Lion of Judah, the innocent one? May that be your portion for God's glory. Amen.